This morning, we are focusing on another pretty well-known and famous thought here in Psalm 23, and that is coming from verse number 5, where David says about God, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. A nice Thanksgiving message for you this morning. I didn't plan it this way. Um, this is not meant to be read and understood that way when you're sitting across from your mother-in-law this Thursday. I just want to throw that out there. Or your crazy Uncle Steve. You prepare, that's, you're going to say grace. Thank you, Lord. You prepare this table. I learned that solace on Sunday before me in the presence of my enemies, okay? Um, but it just, it just so happened, I'm just saying, it just so happened to fall perfectly on this Sunday. Um, now, the proper context of this verse, verse number five, it falls within the section of this Hebrew poem that let's remind ourselves David, the king of Israel, the shepherd king of Israel, uh, he's penning this poem and he's describing, he, he had a background as a shepherd and he's describing what life is like under God's care. And, you know, as he, as he gets to this section, remember, this psalm has taken a turn. We looked at it last week. The first three verses are very almost positive and hopeful in their tone. They're very sheepy and lammy, very optimistic, and very bright, but then all of a sudden, David describes this valley, this valley that he calls the valley of the shadow of death, which was familiar to a shepherd, certainly familiar to sheep, as shepherds would take their sheep to the higher ground in the winter, they would have to pass through dark and difficult valleys. We talked last week about what life can be like when you are walking through the valley, and Letting God's word be the lens through which you view the dark and difficult time that you're walking through. But, but that's what this verse is connected to. One thing we talked about last week is this idea that the valley has a wide variety of versions to it. In this room, we could go around and just share our different versions of the valley. Here's my valley. Here's what my dark and difficult time has looked like. For David, we get an, a window a little bit more specific here in verse 5 into the conflict that he's precisely facing in his valley. And it's a conflict that involves enemies. As we see there in that verse, David says that he is surrounded. He's in the presence of his, of his enemies. That's kind of the color to the valley David's walking through. In reality, David is walking through a real valley of the shadow of death. He has enemies around the corner hunting for his very life. I think it's worth noting for a second what this word enemy actually means, what David is talking about here. I think this word for us may not exactly mean what we think of culturally. When we hear the word enemy, maybe what comes to mind is something cinematic. We think of you know, the classic Neo and Agent Smith or a million other examples that I had to finally pick from, okay? I had like eight. I was like, I'm going to go with this one, okay? Harry Potter and Voldemort. Okay, I kind of went through the whole thing, all right? So we landed with Neo and Agent Smith. But this is what, what might come to mind, something cinematic, a cinematic enemy, or maybe a political enemy that we may have in our culture, something kind of a hot topic. Um, that, that's what, what may come to mind. You think of our culture, and we think of conflict. We think of rivalry. You should have seen the sweat on, the, uh, sound, on, the, on Jeff's face when he saw this image. What are you going to say about it? We're going to move on <laughs> is what we're going to do. I know we all have exactly the same political views in this room anyway, so that's a joke. What binds us is not our politics. What binds us is Jesus, amen? Okay, that goes truer than anything. But in this case, we, we need to understand that the word enemy, it doesn't... It doesn't mean exactly what we're thinking of as, as kind of this conflict. Maybe, as we said earlier, kind of a, a, a struggling you know, relationship you have with a relative or you know, someone at work or 
you know, Carol or Steve, you know, my real enemy. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what may come to mind. But this word enemy that David is talking about, I'm in the presence of my enemies. That's my dark and difficult valley. It, it means somebody who is a hostile attacker. A hostile attacker. Someone who you could say is bent on David's destruction. In a real literal way, not just like with slander, not just like with uh, Instagram vitriolic comments, you know, not just with like gossip, but David is talking about a scenario that he's in where there's somebody whose literal, their mission in life is to wipe him off the face of the earth. And not, it's scary enough if it's just an enemy, but for David, it's plural. There's an army of people that have been commissioned either King Saul or Absalom. Now, we don't know exactly where this psalm finds itself in the chronology of David's story, whether it's his predecessor, Saul, who had disdain and bitterness toward his successor, David. David spent 12 years of his life running for his life from Saul, armies from Saul who wanted to take David out, or, or sadly, at the end of David's life, it could have been Absalom, his own son that was staging his own military coup and this rebellion and uprising against David's regime. Nonetheless, we know that David has faced many foes of this form in his life, people who were bent on his destruction. Now, when you look at your life, do you have any enemies like that? Maybe this morning you're like, I guess I don't have it so bad. I'm not on a, an assassin's hit list. Yippee. What are you thankful for this, you know, this Thanksgiving? I'm not on anyone's literal hit list. That's, I guess that's good, as far as I know. Um, for David, this was a real thing. Imagine living 12 years of your life doing anything to survive. Well, the parallel is, is pretty simple for us as Christians. When we study the Bible, we can certainly be thankful for the lives that we have, but we also should be sober to recognize that Scripture does not shy away from the fact that we, as humanity, especially as followers of Jesus, we have an enemy. There is, whether or not you want to admit it, and it's hard to admit this because we all love to be loved and we hate to be hated, but each and every one of us in this room has a hostile attacker. You are on his hit list. In fact, it's the book of John where Jesus is describing a contrast between a shepherd and a thief. And he says a shepherd is the one that gives life and life abundantly, but there's a thief who has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy the enemy. He's come to steal from us our relationship with God, our joy in relationship with God, our peace. He's come to kill our joy. He's come to kill our relationship with God. He's come to kill our purpose. Destroy. He's come to destroy our lives altogether, our marriages, our families, our callings, our purposes. This enemy contrasted with this shepherd who's come to give life. We're, we're kind of like David in Psalm 23. We're in the presence of an enemy. And right now you're going, really, Andrew? It's 2018, and you still believe in the devil. Well, it comes from Ephesians chapter 6, and Kyle taught on this a couple weeks ago. 
But it's in Ephesians chapter 6 that we get this very philosophical, yet also theological foundation for how we should understand our lives with the conflicts that we face in our wrestle against evil and suffering and difficulty. It's Paul who says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, notice this, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, David is not saying that on this journey, in this life, we won't face flesh and blood forms of evil. Evil certainly, sadly, takes the form of flesh and blood all the time, whether it's in the form of of terrorism or racism or, or injustice, whatever it may be. There's no doubt that there are flesh and blood forms of evil. But as Christians, we have this underpinning of understanding that leads us to see the evil around us as connected to something that the naked eye can't see. We understand that there's more to, to what we see in flesh and blood, that there is this spiritual realm that is aggravating and exasperating the evil that we see in this world. There is spiritual evil. And though it might seem primitive, and it might seem outdated to believe this kind of thing, it's rather philosophically fulfilling. It actually makes a lot of sense. I don't know about you, I do not believe that every form and everything wrong in this world can be traced back to some sort of natural cause. I just don't. And people have tried to do that. They've said the reason why evil exists is because bad education. And then the Nazi regime rose out of one of the most educated civilizations that you had. Oh, it's bad social factors. It's bad environmental factors or psychological factors. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Sometimes the reason why you're fighting with your wife or husband is not the devil. It's because you need to take a nap or get something to eat. It's the devil. No, you need, you, you need a snicker, okay? <laughs> there are natural forms of this, but we know that behind all of this, there is a rebellion against God. There was a rebellion against God. This is not how things were created to be, and the resolution is not just going to come through natural solutions. C.S. Lewis wrote one of the most, I think, insightful books into the world of spiritual warfare, and it's a book called The Screwtape Letters highly recommend that you read it. I got to see it uh, in live action. I went to a, a performance of it and got to see it in, in a play down at the Parker Playhouse in Fort Lauderdale. But it's a creative narrative telling the story, or rather uh, documenting letters that one older demon is writing to, I believe, his nephew, a younger demon named Screwtape. And it's written by a man named Wormwood. And it kind of writes from the perspective of the enemy, kind of like getting the playbook from the other team. Now, in the intro to this book on spiritual warfare, man, I could spend, we could spend months talking about the nature of this beast and where it all comes from and how it's all connected. We don't have time this morning to do that. But there is this quote that C.S. Lewis has in the, in the intro of this book that I think is so helpful. He says this in regards to the realm of the spiritual. He says that there are two equal... And opposite errors into which our race, humanity, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves, this is classic C.S. Lewis poetic writing, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. C.S. Lewis talks about sort of this, um, the, this paradox or these, these two poles that we can find ourselves in when it comes to the spiritual realm. We can kind of simplify it to uh, what I would call underbelief and overbelief. Okay? Underbelief, kind of from the philosophical angle of this, is what C.S. Lewis calls the materialist. Everything is material. Everything has a material cause and solution. And so we don't believe in anything spiritual or demonic or devilish unless it's like literally like hitting us between the eyes, like something from the exorcist, like a, a green something. Like that's the only time we'll be like, oh, spiritual. Okay. That's not normal. Underbelief. Underbelief. But C.S. Lewis also talks about the magician person who's got a, almost an unhealthy, excessive obsession with the spiritual, and everything is the devil, okay? You failed your test because the devil. <laughs> your husband who is who he is because the devil. You're in traffic, and you're late, and you got a red light because the devil, even though that light's on a timer, but it's okay. Overbelief, underbelief. Do you guys understand the reality of the, of the danger of falling into these errors, um, Yes, there's certainly philosophical. There's certainly philosophical implications, but I think what's more important for us as believers, whether or not this is making sense to you philosophically, there are major implications that this can have on us spiritually. Spiritual. Spiritual underbelief, spiritual overbelief. Let's understand it this way. When we talk about this dynamic of understanding spiritual warfare uh, from a materialist view, it's this idea. I think spiritual underbelief when it comes to spiritual warfare is this idea of having too high a view of yourself in the presence of your enemy. Having too high a view of yourself in the presence of your enemy. It's Romans 12, um, I think it's 13 or so. It's in that chapter, I promise you that, Romans 12, where Paul says, let no one think of himself as highly as he ought to think, but soberly. It doesn't mean think of yourselves as nothing, not made in the image of God, down in the dumps, the dumps and, and worthless, but be careful that you have a sober, realistic understanding of who you are, despite your accomplishments and despite your failures. The danger of spiritual underbelief when it comes to the spiritual realm is this idea of having too high a view of yourself and underestimating the legitimacy of Satan's destructive power. Let me say that again. The danger of underbelief is having such a high view of yourself that you underestimate the legitimacy of Satan's destructive power. And sometimes we don't realize it till it's too late and we're looking at the rubble. What often happens, I've seen in this area, is um, how do we end up in that place where we're thinking too highly of ourselves? I don't know about you, but I know for me. It usually happens when I'm on like a spiritual winning streak. Anybody else? couple weeks, couple months even, God forbid a year, all right, of just like resisting all fleshly urges, of, of just controlling all of my anger, and just choosing wise words, and, and just like, and you know, and maybe it's just a season where there's just a absence, you're kind of winning when it comes to trial and temptation. And, and what can happen in those seasons, say those mountaintops, is you sort of, after a while, you start to go, this isn't that hard. People always talk about following Jesus. It's so hard. When I'm at church, you know, it's like, they're like, following Jesus is so hard. But like, look at my life. It's actually pretty easy. 
Meanwhile, you're 19 years old, and you have a whole life ahead of you, but um, what can happen is after a while, you sort of subconsciously forget about and you stop believing in the devil. And you get this high view of yourself. You underestimate his power. And notice the scripture we looked at earlier. It talks about the schemes of the devil. Satan has a playbook. So what he'll often do is wait for you to put your guard down, and he'll hail the materialists great. They don't think I exist. Perfect. And right at your most vulnerable and weak moment, it's like a snake bite out of nowhere. You had this happen to you before? That temptation that you hadn't felt in years, all of a sudden, it's like, where did that come from? You were coasting, and your business was all of a sudden increasing, and you were scaling, and things were good, and then all of a sudden, the drop? Trial out of nowhere, testing out of nowhere. Well, the scriptures would encourage us, again, to think soberly. It's 1 Peter 5.8 that says that we should be sober, We should be vigilant or watchful because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, If you right now find yourself walking with Jesus by yourself, you have way too high a view of yourself. Because Satan loves to prowl on an isolated Christian who thinks that they can overcome him on their own. And so scripture would lead us in a sense to have this healthy respect of the enemy that we're up against, to understand that we do not have the power in and of ourselves to defeat him, and he is cunning, and he is strategic, and he will wait for that moment once your guard is down to attack and to prowl for the purpose of devouring an enemy. There's this other side of this, though, too, right? We talked about underbelief, but we also talked about the danger of overbelief, because I'll be honest, I know some of us can find ourselves in this place where we have too high a view of ourselves, but I think if we could look at the track record, for most of us, it's this Danger of spiritual overbelief, which is this. It's having too high a view of your enemy in the presence of your God. So underbelief, again, is having too high a view of yourself in the presence of your enemy. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. But there's this other danger where you have a lot of Christians who have an overbelief in the enemy. And so they know all about the thief who's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But do you know the good shepherd who's come to give you life? So a lot of Christians, they have too high a view of their enemy in the presence of God. So yes, Satan is prowling. Yes, Satan is looking to devour. But I think one of the most key words of 1 Peter 5.8 is the fact that he prowls around like a roaring lion. When you read the Bible, you understand there's only one roaring lion. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus with whom there is no contest, with whom Satan bows. You see the way the demons are subject to the name of Jesus? They flee. There's terror. The demons believe, the Bible says, and they tremble before who God is. So Jesus would tell us this, okay? Let's be sober. Let's be wise. Let's not think of ourselves in light of our enemy. Let's not let our guard down. Let's not, let's not coast in our wind streaks. Let's, also, let's always stay desperate and depending on God. But let's also be careful that in our understanding of our enemy, we forget that he who is in me is greater than he who's in the world. And so, so many of us, the problem is that we know the enemy better than we know Jesus. We know what he can do. We know his destructive power. But what about the life-giving power of Jesus? What about the abundant life that Jesus can bring? This is kind of what David has been talking about, right? 
Because he said, I've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He, he's understanding that there's a real threat here for my life, man. He talks about the reality of these enemies. But what did he say last week? What did we look at? I'm not going to fear any evil, though. Why? Because you're with me, God. And the presence of my God overrides any fear of the presence of any enemy. Because if God is with me, who can actually be against me? So that's where we're going here. That's what we see here. Now, this all leads us, I think, to this great big promise that I want to share with us this morning when it comes to the enemy. Like David, I think we've laid it out pretty clear by now. We are in the presence of an enemy. There's not just an enemy, but like David, we have enemies. There's spiritual hosts of wickedness, and their aim and their objective for your life, for your relationship, for your family, is to steal, kill, and destroy everything. But there's also this great promise that you have a shepherd. And this is, for I don't know about you, like for me, I need it to be laid out sometimes really simple. Like I'm a simple guy. Sometimes I'm like, God, I just need a black and white. When there's too much gray, I'm just like, huh, who am I? What's going on? And so sometimes I just need some simple, clear truth. And I, and I want to just give us a nice dose of that this morning. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, which says this, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And I love the next part. It's, he kind of says, like, we're kind of like God's Febreze. Check us out. And through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Or for the Christian moms out there, we got the essential oils here in the Bible, okay? We're like the diffusers, okay? And this is talking about a work that God does in our lives that spreads to those around us, that people encounter our lives, and there's this certain victory that people see in us that they can't wrap their head around because they know us. You've got enemies. How are you so victorious over an enemy that is so powerful? And we say to them, thanks be to God. Because he always leads me in triumph. I'm not perfect to always follow. I don't have a perfect track record of victory. But I have a God who has promised me that no, no matter where I'm at, I'm always trekking towards triumph in Christ. What, what hope for us. What hope for us who haven't tasted, who who aren't feeling very triumphant this morning? Maybe that's not the word you were thinking of when you marched into church this morning. Just coming to worship. A triumphant worshiper here at Solace. And this is the hope of the gospel, that we are not triumphant in and of ourselves. Amen? But we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Which is better than just being a conqueror, right? Maybe you've never thought of yourself that way either, like... What's up, man? What's your name? I'm Andrew the Conqueror. What's your name? You know? The Conqueror. A Conqueror. Like, for me, I feel that way, like, after I, like, handle a big meal. If I go to Tucker Dukes and can finish the whole thing, I'm like, Andrew the Conqueror. But what Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. That's awesome. You see, a conqueror is somebody who secures their own victory. But you're more than a conqueror when somebody else secures it for you. When you're not the one who the hope's in for victory, but Jesus is. And he has overcome, and he's always leading us towards triumph in the presence of our enemies. Now, for the also puzzling but necessary question to be asked, and here's, it's this, it's um, how? Because this morning, we're, we're, we're recognizing there's an enemy, 
but we're also recognizing that there's a God who's behind us and with us, who leads us in triumph in the presence of our enemies. But God, how is it that you do that? And we go back to Psalm 23 to read that God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, you might have heard this verse so much that you um, haven't been able to step back for a second and actually think about how comedic this actually is, how unusual this is. I mean, imagine this. Your enemy is at the door, and you're with God, and God says, it's okay. Don't worry about the enemy. Okay, they're coming. We've got to get ready, but I'm with you. Don't worry. You go, okay. All right, God. The enemy's here. The assassin's on the way. The hostile attacker is coming. They're surrounding the house, and God goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the other room. Just wait a second. Sit there for a moment. I'm going to call you back in. What I'm going to do in here is I'm going to prepare for the enemy. And you're in there going, man, you just imagine God like sharpening like a knife, loading up his God gun. You know, preparing for battle. And God goes, okay, come on in. And you can kind of hear the enemy outside. And you walk in the room, and God's just standing there with a little towel over his arm. And a beautiful Thanksgiving spread. And he pulls a chair out and he goes, come on, sit down. Huh? Lord, I know you're God. I know you made everything. I know I'm nothing without you. My mind comes from you. But this does not seem like the opportune time to eat. Maybe we should arm ourselves. The word prepare a table. That's what God has done here in the presence of of your enemies. God brings us into victory. He leads us in triumph. He does it through, and the word prepare is so cool. It means to put in order. It's what you're going to do, all right? This, this Thursday, moms, dads, kids, you're going to help mom. You better, okay? Get that table nice. When that turkey comes out of the oven, you set the table. Make sure the fork and the spoon, I don't know where they go, but they go in the right place. The salad, all the different setup, you got the, you got the different cups, you got the different beverages, and it's spread across. It's prepared nicely as if Someone was being expected, and that's what God has done here. He set the table. It's amazing, because in this, in this chapter, we've seen God mostly as shepherd, right? And I think in this verse, we're expecting to see God as like shepherd warrior. But instead, we see God as shepherd host. The heavenly host prepares a table. Here's a good question. Why? God, why is it that in the presence of my enemies over which you promised me victory, do you prepare a table for me to sit down at? Here's a few reasons. The first is because the table, number one, is a place of relationship. It's a place of relationship. Um, in fact, when you read the narrative of God's work and his people throughout the Old Testament and then in and on into the history of the church, you find that the family of God has always had a table as the centerpiece of their being, of their body. It was a table. For Israel, it was a Passover meal. And they would get together and they would gather around a table to remember God. This is true still in Middle Eastern culture. In North Africa, I got to go to Morocco some um, seven or eight years ago. So today in our culture, what we would do if we want to fellowship with someone is typically we meet them somewhere. The idol of privacy in America is keeping us sometimes from true intimacy, isn't it? And so what we do is we go, I'll, get, I'll meet you for coffee. You're going to go to Maine, man. I'm going to get a cup of coffee at Maine. A little plug there, all right? Going to sit down and 
going to enjoy a nice game. I'll meet you there. We'll sit there and we'll kind of relax. But I remember being in Africa and that's so uncommon to go out into a public space in North Africa to meet someone. That's not what you do. They invite you into their home. So come on in. They make some Moroccan tea. And you sit at a table. You circle up. You get together. It's fellowship. It's a sign of hospitality and relationship. That's why it's called, when we come to the Lord's table, it's called communion. Because you're communing with each other. You're communing with the Lord. And you look at the early church. This is what happened. I mean, right before Jesus He goes to the cross. What does he do with his disciples? He doesn't sit them in rows and preach a sermon to them. He gets them around a table. Isn't that amazing? And to drive the point home of what's going to happen, he gives them a meal. Let's eat together. Let's drink together. Relationship. In fact, this is how we see the church functioning in the book of Acts. You see, the church would gather as one body to hear God's word, to worship, to have Jesus at the center as God's people. But then throughout the week, they would go house to house. We get around the table. When you study church history, you see this sad deviation away from the table as the centerpiece of the church. And there's nothing wrong with a pulpit with a big fat Bible on it and proclaiming God's word, but it's sad because today we have a lot of church attenders. We don't have a lot of church communers. It's Greg Laurie who said, if you train your people to be consumers instead of communers, you'll end up with customers and not disciples. And that's what you have today in the church, partially because we've forsaken the table, a place of relationship, really where we see the Passover meal, really where we see the the Lord's Supper being celebrated. It's this place of relationship. So for God to say, David, in the face of your enemies, I'm preparing a table for you. What God is saying to David is, David, come to my table. Come to me. Come be in relationship with me. And the reason is because you can. Like, I think we forget this. Why should I engage with a relationship with God? Because through Jesus you can. Recognize that. I think sometimes we forget the privilege that we've been given to come to Jesus' table, to commune with God. Let's remember what Romans 5 tells us. The Bible actually tells us that prior to Christ reconciling our sinful lives and bringing us back to God through the cross, the Bible teaches that we were actually God's enemies. That we were hostile with God. That we wanted our elbow room from God. We wanted God in our own terms. We wanted to separate the gap there. We wanted to be our own gods. We were, by nature, enemies of God. Friendship with the world. It's enmity also is what the Bible says with God. Hostility with God. There's this great story about David actually as an older man in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I think that is a great picture of God's kindness towards us and taking us at his enemies and giving us a seat at his table to know him. It's, it's a story that center around, centers around this guy named Mephibosheth. If you weren't paying attention, you are now. Mephibosheth. Mr. Fibs, as I like to call him. Mephibosheth. How many of you guys have never heard of Mephibosheth before? Never heard of Mephibosheth? Who's Mephibosheth? Who? Mephibosheth, who named that guy? Poor guy, all right? The word Mephibosheth wasn't his given name. Mephibosheth was a name given to this young man as a young boy. It means, um, it means man of shame is what it can mean. It's this idea of shameful. And there's a lot of reasons for Mephibosheth to be shameful. Mephibosheth was the, one of the sons of Jonathan, David's best friend, the grandson of King Saul. King Saul's army and King Saul's regime, as God promised, eventually crumbled and fell. And what God promised about David eventually came true. David became king. 
There's a story that tells us about Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 4. That Mephibosheth, as a young boy, he's at home playing in the yard. Who knows what he's doing? But suddenly he gets word that both, of his, that both his dad, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, are dead. Your dad's dead. And your grandfather has died as well. And in that culture, typically the new regime that moves in is not too kind to the old regime. What they would actually do historically was skin them alive and make furniture out of them. Not quite rooms to go, but hey, it works in the Hebrew culture. And so Mephibosheth, he's with his caretaker. His caretaker is freaking out like, Mephibosheth, they got dad, they got grandpa. She doesn't know David, doesn't know the heart of David, but it's just assuming he's coming for you next. She picks Mephibosheth up in her arms, makes a mad dash out of the house to run for their life. She trips and falls, drops the child. And he breaks both of his legs. In that culture, to lose your legs was to lose everything. There was no computer programming job back then. There there was no, it was all manual labor. It was all physical. You had to have your legs to have an identity. So this young boy, we talk about a day, all in an instance, your dad's passed away. Your grandfather's passed away. Run for your life because your dad's best friend is coming to kill you, and now I'm paralyzed. Mephibosheth lives most of his life as a slave, um, hiding. One day, years after David's installed as king, David remembers a covenant that he made with Jonathan. Now, Now Saul was Jonathan's father, and Saul and David, they had some beef. Saul was Voldemort, David was like Harry Potter. It was that bad. But, but, but David goes, I made a covenant with my best friend, Saul's son. And the covenant was that David would show covenantal kindness. After David takes over the kingdom, he promised Jonathan, I will show kindness to all of your descendants. And he goes, is there anybody else? Is there anybody around? He's kind of like one day just going, who can I show kindness to? What a great picture of God. We think God is often on the hunt for us to like track us down, to get us. But right now, if you're in this room, you don't have a relationship with God. Can I tell you God's posture to you? He's just going, who can I show kindness to? He's looking for you to show you kindness. Saul goes, who can I show kindness to? And and one of Saul's servants says, his name was Ziba, great name too. Ziba goes, there's this one man, his name's Mephibosheth. He's of the household of Jonathan. And David goes, go get him. Go get Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, he's brought as a paralyzed man. Now he's brought into David's kingdom, into his courts. And at this point, Mephibosheth is probably going, okay, this is it. You know, I made, my, I made my escape and I did my best. I've been running my whole life. But I guess this is it. I'm going to meet my fate. And as he comes before David, he bows down and he calls himself a dog before David. This is David's enemy, culturally speaking. This is someone who deserves to die. And David opens his mouth, and instead of bringing words of consequence and fate, of judgment and death, David brings life to this young man. He says, man, give this guy the best garments. I want you to give him a bunch of servants, too. And here's the, the key thing I want. I want Mephibosheth to sit at my table. Give Mephibosheth a front row seat to a relationship with me. That centerpiece of relationship. I love the way that the narrative ends in 2 Samuel 9.13. It says, so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. 
And it mentions to let us know he was still both lame in his feet. But do you get the picture? Do you get the picture of our lives, guys? Do you get the picture that just like Mephibosheth, we're all broken? We don't really know exactly when it happened, who dropped us, what caused it, but we know that there's something broken about us. And in that brokenness, there is this separation between us and the king. We don't deserve anything but his judgment and his rejection. But the Bible says this, that when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, God's love shows up. And though we were dead in trespasses and sins, the good news was God was rich in mercy. And in his kindness, he said, who can I show kindness to? So he found our broken lives, and he said, here, come close, come close. Here's a seat for you. Sit at my table. Have a seat. Come close. Come be in a relationship. And the beautiful thing about a table is, think about it, Mephibosheth is lame from the waist down, but at a table. At a table. His brokenness is covered. And it's face to face now. And it's relationship now. Mephibosheth, listen, you belong now. This is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is though we are broken and separate from God, the king of the universe is kind. And despite your brokenness, and despite the fact that you've run from him, he pursues you. And he wants to give you a seat at his table. In fact, he demonstrated how much he loves you. He made such a way for you to be at that table. The Bible tells us that God came into the world and lived life as a man to fulfill all that we failed to do. He lived a perfect and righteous life. He lived justly and blameless before God. His name was Jesus. And this Jesus, he went to a cross. He was crucified via Roman execution upon a cross. And it was on that cross that he was broken in our behalf, that he took on our brokenness. He was removed from the Father's table on the cross and treated like us so that we could have a seat at the Father's table, so that we could be cleansed and forgiven and made whole through him, through just simply coming to him coming to him and all of a sudden these enemies of God belong to God they, they become family family I think the biggest thing here is that Mephibosheth ate continually at the king's table and this is my my one and only point here this morning God has given you a seat to have a relationship with him. The reason why you should come before God in the face and the presence of your enemies is because you can. And he's opened up that seat and says, come as you are, have a seat, and enjoy me continually. Continually is the key. Thank you, God, that you've given me access. Thank you, God, that I belong to you. Right? Because you look around the table. Look around this room. Look around this table. Okay? We don't deserve to be here. We, we, got our, we all have our own versions of our brokenness, but because we get to belong, we're going to come, and we're going to engage with the Lord. You know, there's one way that the church has been doing this and has been fighting their battles throughout all of history, and it's through the recollection and the remembrance of the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus that was broken for us, just like Mephibosheth was broken. We we have the bread that symbolizes the brokenness of God on our behalf. We have the blood that symbolizes the cleansing of our sins. And so for 2,000 years, two millennia, the church, our people, God's people have been getting together around tables and have been eating and drinking in remembrance of this 
truth. God has given us a seed. So I want to invite the worship team to come up, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to enter into a time here of remembering Jesus. And whatever your, your battle is today, whatever your enemies are, I, I don't know what you're fighting today. I, I don't know what form your war has taken. Um, maybe today what you're fighting for is your purity. Maybe you're fighting for your joy. Maybe you're here this morning, you're trying to fight for purpose. You're trying to fight for your marriage. You're trying to fight for your family. What God does for you and me is he opens up a chair and he says, sit down. He says, get off your feet and take a seat. Our tendency is to be like Peter. Remember Peter? As Jesus is going to the cross, as he's being betrayed, he pulls out his sword. He goes, I got you, Jesus. I'll fight this one for you. Cuts off a man's ear. Jesus goes, Peter, put your sword away, bro. Put your sword away, dude. That, that's not how we fight. Some of us, that, that's where we are today. We've been on our feet fighting. Trying to overcome our enemies trying to, to have victory in our battles, and we've been doing it in the flesh on our feet. And Jesus says, come here. Sit down. Just be still. That's what he told Israel. Just stand still and watch me. Just get out of my way in your life for a second. Come to me and allow me to fight your battles. Allow me to bring your victory. Put your sword away. Remember Peter? There he is, cutting the man's ear off with a sword. But it was, it was the same night, just moments ago, that Peter was being told by Jesus, Peter, just pray, man. Remember that? Peter's so quick to take out a sword and cut a dude's ear off in the name of the battle. But Jesus said, that's not the, that's not the fight we're fighting. The real fight is not on your feet, it's on your knees, Peter. So get down. Stay still. Get stationary. Watch and pray and we're just like Peter man I don't know how many times I got to find myself exhausted on my feet to remind myself that I got to get out of Jesus' way and just get down on my knees to come to his table to bring him my cares to bring him my worries well communion is a great way to do that coming to the Lord's table we hold the cracker and we hold the blood and we remember this the greatest battle that we could have ever faced has already been won so whatever battle we're facing, whatever victory, we speak to it in the, in the promise and the hope and the power of Jesus. That if God, you provided your son for me, Paul says, nothing else is going to be too hard for him. So we sit in his presence and we remember who he is. We remember that he fights our battles. We, we choose to be stationary to allow God to move. So let's do that. Let's take a moment to do that. We have two stations here, um, two in the front, two in the back. And during this song, it's just a moment for you to sit, to sit at the Lord's table and to rest and remember who he is and how faithful he's been. Let's do that.